Heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together as family on a morning set aside from eternity past to your glory. Father, thank you for loving us and thank you for inviting us into the sphere of that love that we might fellowship and enjoy times like this together as family. As children of yours father we're so grateful for all the grace and the mercy that you've shown us over the years father we're so grateful for all that you've done and for the fact that we're able to share these things with others and that Christ might shine through us father we pray for those that are ill in our congregation that you comfort them and that you bring them back to the fold in your good timing. We pray for those that are still lost, without hope, depraved, that they be humbled before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a morning like this a reality for all of us to enjoy. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence. Uh, on Wednesday, we were given an old friend to situate us smack dab in the center of what we've dubbed the sphere of God. I'm going to talk an awful lot about this idea, and I hope you know exactly what the Spirit's trying to convey when we talk about the sphere of God, and you'll see me sort of draw it in the air. Um, go to John, oh, actually, I've got, it, I've got it up here, sorry. John 15, 10, let's start this way. Speaking of the sphere of God, here's one aspect, not the only aspect, but the aspect that's been sort of percolating up in our studies as of late and it was actually something that I taught a few months ago. This idea of the continuity, the, 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 the grip between love and obedience, and how those two things are found exclusively in the sphere of God. John 15.10 reads, If you keep my commandments, so there's an if statement, something to follow. If you do this thing, you will abide my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In other words, there's the prototype. That's the pattern. And then he said in John 14, 15, if you love me, which is the opposite direction, you will keep my commandments. And there's that thing, right? They're, they're one and the same. That's the point. So our conclusion from months ago, when we studied this out in greater detail, was that obedience and love are intrinsic to each other. And I'm talking about godly obedience and godly love. They are intrinsic one to the other. Like, if, you're, if you know anything about chemistry, hydrogen and oxygen in water. Without the linkage... They are merely gases. Is that not the most, that used to be one of the craziest things when I was studying 
chemistry. Um, the fact that hydrogen, which is a gas, and oxygen, which is a gas, when they bond, you get water. It's the craziest thing. By themselves, they're gases. You can't drink hydrogen, can you? You don't drink oxygen. You're, if you're thirsty, you don't drink oxygen. You drink water. So apart, they're really useless when it comes to thirst. Together, they're primitive to our health, our good health even. So it's not a bad analogy. So again, hydrogen and oxygen, oxygen comprise water. Without the linkage, they are merely gases, two elements that hardly quench our thirst. And yet, when put together by the hand of God, they make the most magic, if you want to call it, magical primitive liquid on planet Earth. Obedience and love are sort of like that. If they aren't together, they are disjointed. And then they, they don't satisfy our thirst for God. Does that make sense? If, they don't, if they're not a package deal, they don't work. The end result that we're looking for doesn't happen. Go to John 4.4. 4. So we're going to dive into this a little bit this morning. Keep that uh, analog in mind, the idea of hydrogen, H2O, as a lot of folks might know. Two parts, hydrogen, and just a little trivia for you. It looks like Mickey Mouse, if you ever see the, the actual molecule. It looks like Mickey Mouse. Anyways. John 4.4. 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, talking about Jesus. So he came to a town. Now remember, back in the day, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. Okay, Samaritans were kind of like the, um, the dregs in, from Jewish perspective. So here's a Jew, Jesus Christ, walking and passing through on purpose Samaria. A lot of times the Jews would go around. <laughs> It'd be like, you know, if you had to go through, uh, I don't know, central New Bedford at one in the morning. You might walk around. You might even drive around just because of your feelings on the situation. Anyways, so he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So this is an incredible passage of Holy Scripture that shouldn't be written off as Jesus simply, you know, waxing poetic. There's an extremely important point he's making here. And you have to step back and ponder why the Spirit chose to include this particular historical scene in the completed canon. You got to remember that. The Bible says that if, if, if it captured all the incredible things that Jesus did, they, we wouldn't be able to fit them in books. But So when you see this kind of an instance captured in the canon, the completed canon, you have to say there must be real purpose to it. There must be something that we can draw from. Um, what Jesus was describing was how the God-given thirst that a human soul has for him can actually be quenched. Now, what he's not saying is, if you simply obey me in the absence of knowing or loving me, let's say, and I'm taking that molecule and breaking it apart now, let's make it not water. Let's do something that doesn't quench the thirst. What he's not saying is if you simply obey me, in the absence of knowing or loving me, you'll enjoy the gift of eternal life. He's not saying that. And he's also not saying if you simply love me, in the absence of obedience of faith, you'll enjoy the gift of eternal life. Instead, what he did in this situation was open up a dialogue with this woman who the average Jew would have avoided, given she was a Samaritan. He chose to do something the Spirit ended Wednesday's message with. Jesus sought intimacy. You can see the scene. He's sitting at a well. Here comes someone who is, you know, historically beneath Jews. She's even surprised that he's speaking with her, asking her, to do this thing for him. But Jesus never was bound like that, was he? That was one of the most beautiful things that we can all learn from. We can all learn from. Jesus wasn't bound like, he didn't have prejudices like that. He said, here's a perfect opportunity, and by the way, my spirit's going to capture it in the Bible. Here's a perfect opportunity for me to show this woman love or intimacy, to invite this woman into the sphere that I abide in and I have always taken abode in since eternity past. Here's an opportunity for intimacy. As most of you know, his invitation was extended through this woman to her husband in the verses that follow and others, of course. Again, though, the key passage, look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here's a good way to think about the import 
of Jesus' words up here on the board, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To drink from the well that Jesus referred to was to have one's spiritual thirst for God quenched. To, quote, drink him, because that's what he's talking about. To drink him implies the most, the utmost intimacy. In other words, it means to know him. To drink from that well implies knowledge of him. Matthew 7.23, John 17.3. Again, to drink him implies the utmost intimacy. It's not enough to simply know of Jesus, as I fear even a lot of professing Christians do. There's got to be a supernatural intimacy in play. Go to Matthew 7.23. Matthew 7.23, there's got to be a supernatural intimacy in play. Obviously, that's what he was talking about at the well. She was talking about physical water. He was talking about the water that he's able to give. Matthew 7, 23. Same person, right? Jesus Christ. I will say to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are people who, quote, unquote, obeyed the law. That's the context. But didn't we obey? Yeah, but I don't know you. You don't have any love for me. It's apparent because you don't have even love for each other. Or love for my people. You don't have love. You obey the law. I'll give you that. But you don't have any real love. Therefore, I don't know you. You're not in the sphere of God. There's no intimacy, in other words. We cannot presume a person is saved just because they say something like, and I've heard this many times, oh, of course I believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, what American almost doesn't say that nowadays, a little less, but say, even 20 years ago, when I was, you know, when I was growing up, it, uh, that would have been a little bit more than 20 years ago. But everyone said they believed in Jesus, because everybody knew who Jesus was. And even nowadays, if you're in most circles, someone will say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, yeah. Well, what, what do you believe, though? Because Jesus also said himself, not only did he say, I never knew you to some people, who actually obeyed in the absence of love. No water, in other words. Nothing quenching their thirst, but just two different elements on the periodic table. Two little things that they like to do, but never joined the way we started. Love and obedience. So you get a lot of people that say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. But Jesus also said, you shall know them by their fruit. John the apostle of love, railed against self-professing unbelievers. Railed against them. Said, if you don't, if you say all this stuff, but yet this is not present, you're a liar. You're a liar, and the truth is not in you. It's not surprising, is it, that one of the great things that Jesus, we've noted this over the past couple of months, Jesus really and truthfully, I'm like this myself nowadays, despised hypocrites. 
despise people who say, I believe in Jesus Christ, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm all this stuff, but really have no love or no obedience or any of the above. And that's the person who Jesus is going to say, sadly, I never knew you. I know you, you said you knew me on earth. I know you, what you said to your parents or your children or your friends or even your uh, members of the of your church that you were a member of. I know what you said, but I never knew you. You don't know me. And so Jesus also said, you shall know them by their fruit. His apostles railed against hypocrisy. The invitation into the sphere of God implies an intimate relationship. An intimate relationship. For example, Donald Trump is my president, and I know of him. I do. I know of him. I mean, I see him. I even know of the work he's doing in office. But, and, 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 I might I, I do obey him. I try to be a law-abiding citizen, right? And he's the chief, so to speak. So I know the office, the work he's doing in office. But do I really know him as a person? Do I have any real intimacy with Donald Trump? In other words, would I trust him personally with my life? Honestly, I'd have to get to know him in order to trust him like that. Or maybe not trust him. Maybe I get to know him and he's not trustworthy. That's the picture of other gods, other religions out there in this world. Why would we ever expect the greatest decision, bar none, why would we ever expect the greatest decision in a person's life to trust in salvation in Jesus? Why would we expect that to be anything but intimate? Is not your soul the most intimate possession you've got? Aren't you? Isn't that everything that you've got to your name? Rich, poor, whatever, any other attribute, polar attribute, doesn't matter. Isn't that the, the greatest asset you've got to your name? It's, it's you. It's who you are. Why would you entrust that to somebody you don't know? Why would you ever expect that the greatest decision in human history, the miracle of salvation, would be anything but intimate. And yet, a lot of so-called Christian, and I put that in air quotes, so-called Christian churches nowadays dupe people into a watered-down gospel lacking intimacy with the one person who is able to save them. Go to John 17, verse 3. John 17, verse 3. This is why we fight the good fight. Because we don't want Jesus Christ marginalized, if you know what I mean. We don't want our relationship or a relationship with him to be marginalized, to make that secondary, maybe a nice-to-have, but not necessary for salvation. We don't want to do that. John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life, 
this right here. In other words, this is what it means to be in the sphere of God. And use the word that Jesus just taught us about. I never knew you. But didn't we do these things? Yeah, but I don't know you. you. You were never with me. This is eternal life, that they know you. Do you see the analog? In other words, for you to have eternal life, you have to know him. The same way Jesus is saying, I don't know you. Here it says, you have to know. In other words, one is the exclusive statement, one's the inclusive statement. Know at an intimate level. This is eternal life, that they know you. So, oh, so let me just play devil's advocate. So everybody that knows of God is going to be saved? Nope. So what do you think is being said here? There's an intimacy. This is eternal life, that they know you intimately. Intimately. The, one, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, this is what precipitated from the point on the board back in our scene at the well, a spring of water welling up to this same eternal life. To drink from the well that Jesus referred to as to have one's spiritual thirst for God quenched. To drink him implies the utmost intimacy. In other words, to know. What we conclude then, to use our opening H2O, a water analogy, is to know is an intimate description of a meaningful relationship between two people. In this case, it's between Jesus Christ and a believer. Unbelievers don't know him. They only know of him, maybe. This is why when a believer drinks the word of God, that is Christ, of course, their thirst is quenched. At salvation, it means that we are born again into eternal life, or as I taught not so long ago, into life itself, eternal. God is life. Jesus Christ is life. And he's also eternal. So when we're saved, we're born again into that life. We're given life eternal or eternal life. An unbeliever can read a Bible and walk away with an unsatisfied thirst for salvation. Furthermore, an unbeliever and even believers acting disoriented from God's will, they can experience, quote, love and yet remain distressed or they can experience obedience and remain insecure to our opening point it isn't until these two things come together right obedience and love until they come together supernaturally in a very intimate way it isn't until these two things come together supernaturally in a way that produces something transcendent, the way hydrogen and oxygen comes together and creates water. It isn't until that thing happens that a person's thirst is truly quenched. 
Everything else is a mere shadow at best. And always a counterfeit to what Jesus describes in terms of knowing him and drinking from this well, which is himself. To know him is to drink of him. Is that not a very intimate depiction? You mean to drink? Think of the Lord's Supper. To partake in him? To take him in? I mean, what's more intimate than that? Than to take someone in on the inside? This is why I brought you to the verse we're on. You're still on John 17, 3, right? And this is eternal life, that they know you, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I hope you see the connective tissue. I hope you see what the Spirit's drawing together here. Hint. To drink him is to know him to abide in the sphere of God, which is tantamount, saying the same thing, in other words, tantamount to saying to drink him is to abide in eternal life, which is God. Do you see? Do you see? I, in other words, I can start, if, if the sphere is filled, if this sphere that I keep drawing is filled with all aspects of God, let's say, I can start here and draw a connection here. I can start here and draw a connection here. That's all the Bible does. It just draws connection between all, and they're all interlaced. You cannot pluck one out, we'll get to this in a moment, and expect to abide in that sphere. Again, to drink him is to know him, to abide in the sphere of God, which is tantamount to saying, to drink him is to abide in eternal life, which is God. This echoes back to our old friend, the one we began with up here on the board. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we think about that, whenever we broach the subject of the sphere of God or life eternal or knowing him or abiding in his love, or even keeping his commandments, whenever we broach this topic, we must understand that all of these things are a package deal. They are a package deal. All the things I just described, eternal life, obedience, love, knowing him, abiding in his love, all those things, it's a package deal. It's like, and this is, this is a weak analogy, but bear with me. It's like going to Sam's Club or BJ's. These are the wholesalers, these wholesale clubs um, that Tammy doesn't like for me to go to because I come back with like 15 rolls of uh, what do you, uh, paper towels and 75 rolls of toilet paper. We have no place to put it, but it was such a good deal. Anyways, they don't just sell lots of one thing. You can go there and buy bundles of stuff, like, a, like you know, a bundle of, I don't know, bathroom stuff or toiletries or 
uh, even food. So anyways, so it's like going to Sam's Clubs or, or BJ's, seeing a certain bundle of, say, cleaning supplies and attempting to purchase one item out of the bundle by itself. What has happened to the original bundle? It's no longer the actual bundle. The magic's gone. You don't even get the special pricing anymore. The magic is gone. Its essence has been compromised. So I hope you see the analog to the sphere of God. It is the exact same way if you attempt to extract one thing, for example, one thing out of the package deal that we are calling the sphere of God, you end up on one side of the way that leads to life or the other, but not actually on it. It's a package deal. You can't get out of the car and run beside the car. You have to be in. That's why the, the encouragement for 10 years now from this pulpit is all in. All in. To whatever degree you're not all in, to that degree you suffer. So take the time to think about that. Let me be more specific here. But in keeping with our baseline discussion about two things that Jesus personally drew a connection between, that is love and obedience, just for the sake of being specific for a moment with this idea of plucking things out at will, you know. If you pluck love out of the bundle but leave obedience, you end up being licentious. If you pluck... Wait, did I do that backwards? I did, didn't I? If you pluck obedience out but leave love, you become licentious. No, no I'm doing this right. Wait, back up. I mean for safekeeping. I'm getting myself confused. Sorry. For safekeeping. If you say, I'm going to pluck love out of the bundle for me, but you can keep obedience. Thank you. Then you become licentious. In other words, you reach into the sphere of God and say, hmm, I like the idea of love. I'm going to keep that for me, but you can keep obedience. You become licentious. In other words, there's a license now to sin because there's no mandate for obedience. You don't think people do that? Oh my, people do that all the time. What do you think most Christian churches teach nowadays? It's why most Christian followers are miserable. Because they think, they, they think they're being sold this idea that God is just this loving flower child being and he has no real mandates on them, you know, to keep them in line for their own protection. And so they run off with this idea, this flowery idea about the love of God, and it's all emotional, right? That's why there's a lot of rock bands and stuff. It's all emotional. It's all emotional upheaval. Woo-woo-woo, let's celebrate. Don't, don't learn about the actual commands that are actually good and healthy for you, that keep you from destroying yourself. Don't learn about that. So just, take, just reach into the Bible, reach into the sphere of God, the Word of God, pluck out the things you like. Who doesn't like love, right? Pluck out love, hold that fast, leave obedience behind. You end up with licentiousness. You have a, a, an entitlement, a, a license to sin now. The other one, 
is if you pluck obedience out for yourself, but leave love, you end up religious. Because now you're just sterile. Now you're just doing things for the sake of doing them without any love. Make sense? And I apologize about that perspective issue there. Both describe fundamental errors the Bible speaks about over and over again. For example, the Gentiles suffered from licentiousness while the Pharisees' religion. That's what we keep seeing over and over and over again. People reach in and say, I'd like one. Jesus laid out very clearly, these two things come as a package deal. But people want to reach in and pull one out and, say, and leave the other one behind. And it's just something that human beings in their flesh are really good at. Today, we might think of the, the licentious group being the contemporary or ecumenical church where, you know, quote, love is touted as the only thing that matters. But go ahead and feel free to live disobediently as long as you love. And on the flip side, we might think of the religious crowd as the Catholics who literally look like Pharisees. If you look at their doctrines, you look at their, even what they produce as fruit, they literally look just like modern-day Pharisees. And they lead millions astray with a works program. So we have these two same things, right? They're living and breathing. These two same errors are still living and breathing. And there's a reason why both categories of people suffer. The point is that we can't extract certain attributes intrinsic to God himself and presume we haven't damaged them fundamentally. I can't say I really want a long drink of water, but only give me the hydrogen part. Because you're just going to get a bunch of vapor. You're going to get a bunch of gas. I can't say I'm really thirsty. Give me some pure oxygen. But that is exactly what people suppose. I have a thirst for God. Let's say they even have it. I have a thirst for something. I have a thirst for the truth. I have a thirst for God, but I don't want God. I only want the love part. You can keep the obedience. Or I only want to be religious, so I'll take the obedience and you can keep the love. You will never, your thirst will never be quenched. That's the point. Whenever we extract any facet of, the God, of this God, our God's holy essence, from the rest of who he is, in other words, the sphere of him, we distort it. Does that make sense? Whenever we extract any facet of God's holy essence and we try to separate it from who he is, from the sphere of him, we distort it. It's no longer obedience within the sphere. It's no longer love within the sphere. It's distorted. And so what do you think about a tree that has distorted roots? It bears what kind of fruit? Distorted fruit. 
The fruit looks a little bit like what it's supposed to look like, but it's not the fruit that God gives. That's why such things as counterfeit love and counterfeit obedience exist in this world. That's why. Because people take godly things and distort them. And because they're distorted, they're no longer true. They're not the absolute true thing. They're now counterfeits. They look sort of like the real thing, but they're actually counterfeits. And as I've taught you from this pulpit, as the Word of God says, counterfeits never satisfy. Counterfeits do not lead us to peace and contentment and all the things everyone really desires in this world. They lead us away in bondage. So this is why such things as counterfeit love and obedience exist in this world, and it's exactly why those who cling to such counterfeits have divorced themselves from the fruit of the real thing. In other words, peace, contentment, and as our series title describes, our confidence in the Lord. <laughs> if, the one you, if the one you proclaim to follow says, I never knew you, oh, where's your confidence go in that moment? Right? Gone. If the one you claim a relationship with says, I never knew you, your heart is going to break on the spot. Right? Where's your confidence go? Where's your sense of security go? Where did your peace just go? Where did your contentment go? Out the window. You have no confidence. If the one you're, suppo the one you're looking at says, I don't know you, do you have any <laughs> real right to confidence in that person? No. He's literally saying to your face, I don't know you. You're going to protect me, right? You're going to save me, right? You got me, right? I said that little prayer when I was like three years old, and I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. But my parents assured me, oh, yeah, I got saved. I said that little thing in prep school. I said this little thing. I think I, I'm good. I'm good, right? I don't know you. I guess it really is important to get real and honest and truthful about this relationship. Is that fair? Yeah. And if you are saved, the same goes for believers. For all I know, I could be describing some of you right now. Remember, there's a reason why you don't have the peace you long for whoever I'm talking to in that moment. There's a re and I'm really talking to everyone because every, no, anybody here want to claim they have perfect peace? <laughs> so to whatever degree you don't have perfect peace, something's not right. So there's a reason why you don't have the peace you long for. And it's not God's fault, it's sins. We looked at a practical instance of this in the Bible. Let's review our work. Go to Matthew 8.23. Matthew 8.23. And so 
what the Spirit's building up in our souls is really what is it that we're reaching into the sphere of God, plucking out for ourselves, breaking up the package deal, and expecting good fruit from? What is it that we're doing? Honestly, what is it that we're doing? What are we doing in our individual lives? What are we reaching into the sphere of God for and then divorcing ourselves from him? How are we doing that? What's the specifics in our lives? Matthew 8, 23, here's a perfect practical illustration of what happens when you're lacking. And when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the, by the waves, but he was asleep. So he has perfect peace. There's your illustration. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them very simply, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Up here on the board, to capture that scene, the power of true faith. Jesus had a peace that transcended all circumstances. At the core of this peace was his faith. He embodied truth, that's John 1.14, and therefore enjoyed perfect ongoing freedom because the truth will set you free, John 8.32. In the context of this morning's message, we may rightly conclude that Jesus abided nonstop, never failed, never left, never reached in and plucked something out and said, I'll be over here, Dad, never departed from the sphere of God which is why he was able to sleep when everybody else was flipping out. And you know that scene in your own life when someone who has a certain faith, who you know, for the most part, nobody's perfect, abides in the sphere of God. They're all in. You would say, that person's all in. They have peace, and you're over here going, I don't have it. I would really like it, but I don't have it. And God the Holy Spirit has been saying to some of you for years, then let go of the counterfeit. Let it go and go back. Go to where Jesus was. Here's your illustration. You know what the problem is. You're still clinging to things of the flesh. You are disobedient. Do you follow? What was it? Love and what? Obedience. You are disobedient. Therefore, you lack. Whatever that is in your life, I don't know what that is. But to whatever degree you're clinging to it, to that degree, you're not like Christ, who slept in the middle of a storm. Most of you have a hangnail and can't sleep at night. Most of you have a bad, one bad day at work, or someone cuts you off on the highway, and it bothers you for two days. I can't believe that person. Still, I'm still, just so you know, I'm not judging. I'm still bitter. Someone stole my sunglasses. How long was that? Like three years ago? Listen to this. this is, I never go to the beach, ever. Drive my motorcycle to the beach. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Go to the bathroom, take my glasses off so I can see what I'm doing. Right? I leave them there. Two minutes. I'm like, oh, I ran back, gone. I'm bitter. Someone stole. And I think I found the culprit, and he wouldn't admit it. He was the only guy walking away from there within like a stone's throw. I'm like, did you find some glasses? Nope. Like, you're lying to me. 
lying in my face. Still bitter. See how it is? The hell's wrong with me? It's like three years ago. The problems. To whatever degree I don't forgive and forget and let it go, guess what? I'm in bondage. Bitterness is bondage. Jesus wasn't bitter. God's never been bitter in his entire existence, ever. Jesus had perfect peace and a sense of security, security that his disciples simply didn't have. And what was his response to their panic again? Look at verse 26. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid? Without getting too theological, suffice to say that faith is the vehicle that leads us into the very sphere of God. Think of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace through faith, you are saved. Faith is the vehicle. It's given as a gift, but it's the vehicle. We jump on board of, the, of faith, right? Faith is what transports us to the sphere of God. We have to have faith. Just like I just told you, you're going to have to let go of that thing. Right? In uh, team building exercises, they do that thing where you fall backwards. You're going to have to let go of your sense of standing up straight and fall back into someone else's hands. You're going to have to let go. What does that require? Before you fall back, you better have faith in those two people that are going to catch you, right? That's what faith is. Faith is that transport that lets us, it lets us let go. And then it takes us back. So faith is like the vehicle that leads us to the very sphere of God. As believers, experientially speaking, it leads us back to it. So at salvation, it brought us to it. And then as believers, it leads us back. Every time we decide we're going to take a hiatus, faith leads us back. As James wrote, faith without works is dead. James 2.17, faith without works is dead. In a sense, faith, again, is the workhorse in the spiritual life. So think about this. I know I just piled on some theology proper, but think about it. It's all connected. Don't lose sight. When are you delivered from turmoil in your soul? When you exercise faith in God. When you let go of your own provision, your, own, your, your flesh's solution to the problem, when you let go and you allow faith to carry you back into the loving arms of God right back into the sphere of God, sleeping in the bow of the boat. What do, we, what do most of us do? Nope. I'm be up with my bucket, manning the sails, screaming, yelling, trying to control everything because we're control freaks, right? Trying to control other people even, yelling at each other, biting, snapping. Exercise a little faith, you can sleep in the bow. Hmm. Faith leads you to that place that is the sphere of God. Think about it. When you think of the sphere of God, this is God's realm, right? It predates human history. God has never in his existence ever once been in turmoil. 
So if you're going to go to a place where there's relaxation and peace, maybe you go to that place. <laughs> maybe you go to the place where, where God is, who's never, ever, in the sphere of his existence, experienced turmoil or confusion or insecurity or anxiety. Never. They are mutually exclusive things. There's no turmoil with God. Faith has the ability, is the workhorse that leads you right back to that place. The only thing that's keeping you there is your faith in self, or faith in the world, or faith in whatever's over here. This is why the Bible also speaks of a little thing called obedience of faith. Faith that's given to you as a gift from God. It's a grace gift. It's real. That faith is a train that goes in this direction to the sphere of God. Right? God keeps saying, get on the train. Get on the train. You get on the train, you go right back to me. It only goes in one direction. But see, you're on another train, on another set of tracks, off to the side, licentious, religious, well, I don't know. You're on another train that's taking you in that direction. And he's saying, get off of that one and get on mine. That's the obedience of faith. That's what it means to be obedient to faith. Faith's going in that direction, ushers you right back to God. Obey it, you get on, you go. When God gives you a measure of faith, Romans 12.3 says it's a grace gift. can't manufacture it yourself. Got to do this little thing right here. It's a whole nother story. When God gives you a measure of faith, you gravitate towards Him, towards all things in the sphere of Him. That's how faith works. It leads you to Him, but away from sinfulness. That's how faith works. It leads you to God, away from sinfulness. In other words, to personify faith, it has divine good intention for you. Do you, do you understand? God says, I'm going to give you a measure of faith. And for a lot of us, there's competing faith, isn't there? He says, I'm going to give you a measure of faith in me, in my promises. Does everything just evaporate at that point? Does our faith in ourselves to deliver ourselves evaporate Johnny on the spot? No. Now you've got competing. But on his train, it always goes that way. On our train, it always goes that way. You have to make a decision daily to get on his train, to exercise obedience of faith, because he's the one in command form that says, get on the train. I've given you the, the, the ability as a grace gift. I'm not asking something you're not capable of doing because I'm doing this good thing in you. I'm sanctifying you in this direction. I'm not asking you to do something you can't do. Just do it. Just obey. Hmm. So to personify faith, it, it really does have divine good intention for you to your benefit and this is God's good intention for his children. And when we follow God's demand, what do we call that? 
Obedience. Obedience. So, this explains that when the Bible uses the phrase obedience of faith, it's simply referring to abiding in the sphere of God. Get on the train, get back to me. That's what obedience of faith means. We are commanded. God gives us faith by grace. We obey. He is glorified. Done. Done. And when He's glorified, you reap some of the benefits. So this is my intention. You're over here. I want you over here. When you get here, you get fruit of the Spirit. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, blah, blah, blah. All those things. You get those things. You are initially introduced to this spiritual phenomenon when you receive saving faith at salvation. And remember, the gospel is a demand, is a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. That's a command. That's your very first intro to obedience of faith. By grace you've been saved. Well, by faith you've been saved by grace, through grace. You know what I'm saying. Why am I having problems today? By grace through faith. Enough said? Hmm. You are initially introduced to the spiritual phenomenon when you receive saving faith at salvation. So in other words, your first obedient act is at salvation. And it's obedience to faith. Obedience of faith. And then as a believer, experientially speaking, you are ushered back there after you sin, then you confess, and then you repent. Get back on the train. Faith saved you. Faith will save you now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Very simple. We couldn't save ourselves at salvation. We can't save ourselves as believers. When I say save as believers, I mean deliver. God saves daily though, right? Hmm. That's all big picture stuff. For some time now in this series, we've been sort of dancing around this very rose bush from all angles. During this time, the concept of reading your Bible has never left the table. I just alluded to it a couple of minutes ago. I want that faith. Give us more faith. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. You want to get on the faith train? Get this. That's the whole point. You want to, you want to reap the benefits, the fruit of the Spirit? Read your Bible. None of this happens without knowing Him. Is He right here? No. What do we have? This. He's the Word of God. We don't get any of the benefits without knowing Him. There's no shortcut. There's no pharmaceutical pill. There's no certain little dance you can do. There's nothing but this. This is why we use this in our studies. So we've been sort of dancing around the same thing. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. It's never left the table. For example, here's where we ended on Wednesday. John 17, 17, up here on the board. 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Don, can you go see if someone's parked out here over there? Sounds like a truck. You guys getting that? That's the heat? Really? Did it just come on again? Yeah. We, don't we normally leave the fans on? Yeah. Um, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, you want to be obedient to the faith? You want to understand what it means to be in the sphere of God? You have to know Him. You have to know what this means. It's why He gives teachers like myself as a gift to you, to help you to get there, to encourage you to get back on the faith train, to get there again. Jesus Christ, just another way. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What do you think? Big picture. On the faith train, moving towards the sphere of God. What do we call that movement? Sanctification. This came up a couple weeks back. The greatest experience in this lifetime is to abide in truth. I feel horribly for people. I don't even know how to explain it. If it can be true, it's got to be true to some degree. Children of God that don't enjoy um, being a member of his family. It's just awful. It's awful. I think about any believer who finds themselves for a time disjoint from the word of truth. It's heartbreaking. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, abide in truth, you will abide in my love. And what is greater than that? If you keep my commandments, if you, if you abide here in the sphere of God, you obey and get on the faith train, trying every angle I can here, folks, you will abide in my love. Anybody here want to raise their hand and say they don't want to be loved by God? What's greater than that? Do you want I just described to you as heaven? That's what heaven's going to be. Knowing 100% pure that you're loved for all of eternity. No doubt, no white knuckling, no sleepless nights, nothing. Just pure, unadulterated, perfect, holy love. And, and you mean Jesus is saying, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love? Can we keep his commandments perfectly? No, therefore we don't experience that heavenly love yet. But he's saying that is possible today. That through the miracle of salvation and sanctification, you can be here and experience my love even on earth. Does that not break your heart to know that there are people out there that don't? How about unbelievers? Never. But how about our brothers and sisters in Christ? 
who are, who maybe are standing behind, who maybe are sitting in your seat in another place right now, being lied to. They're not getting the absolute truth. They're getting some watered down version of Jesus, some thing. That breaks my heart. Jesus made the connective tissue for us when he said up here on the board, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What do you say about what's the greatest commandment of all for us? To love. Love God and love one another. That's the greatest of all, right? He also said this is how people are going to know. This is how you're going to know that you actually have love. Hey, no, no, you know, no, uh, no qualms about it. No, make no. Some of you are hard to love. Some of you have given me reason not to love you personally over the years, and vice versa, I'm sure. But Jesus Christ said, "You're gonna know if you have a love, this love that I had, the same love I had when I was on a cross that said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as they hung me and murdered me.'" If you have any of that, love your enemies. If you have any of that in you, you know that's from me. That's how you know. This was Jesus' way of saying all that the Spirit's been saying this morning. We're just wrapping it up. The greatest of these is what? Love. Hmm. When he said that, it's just his way of saying the same thing that the Spirit's been saying from this pulpit all morning, that the true litmus test for this abiding is love. Love. And as we've been noting, the true litmus test for love is obedience. I didn't say that. Jesus Christ said that. Correct? There you go. The true litmus test for abiding is love. The true litmus test for love is obedience. See, a lot of people want to stop right there, don't they? Ah, oh, love, yeah, love. But we have to check ourselves. What about obedience? Because Jesus said they're this way. No getting around it. Hmm. The true litmus test for abiding is love. The true litmus test for love is obedience. Paul amplified this, this mindset. That's where, that's where the Spirit's trying to take you. Go to Colossians 3.14. These things become you. Remember from a couple of messages back, obedience becomes you. It's who you are. It's who you want to be because you love Him because you're abiding in the sphere of who he is. You're drinking him in. It's welling up to eternal life. Colossians 3.14 And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Think about that. If you think about all the things you know about God, the one thing, the tie that binds it all together is love. The thing that makes it harmonious is love. 
And then what? Look at this in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Does that not just sound like heaven? That literally describes heaven on earth. Put on love and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's heaven on earth. To which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I know this is almost poetic, but obedience of faith is right there. It's right there at the surface. Let the word of Christ, look it. This is the word of Christ. There are a bunch of commands in here. Let the word of Christ rule in your hearts. That's the obedience of faith. Let that be your status quo, your MO for every day. They're all connected. Do you see? Put on love, you have peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. In other words, get on the train and be thankful that God's doing all of this for you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then Paul wrote also about maintaining this perspective throughout our days. Go to Philippians 4, 8. And I'm going to pick a spot to close. Philippians 4, 8. Just checking how far out I am. Mm -hmm. Philippians 4, 8. <clears throat> Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, he pretty much just described what it's like to be in the sphere of God. Think about these things. Remain here. How do we get dragged out of the sphere of God? We start thinking about other things. We get distracted by TV commercials, by our phones, by our so-called friends. We get dragged away. It's not a physical thing I've been describing. There's no real train, folks, just for you. Right? We're, this is all happening up here. We get pulled away. You want to remain here? You want to remain in peace? Don't be dragged away. Think about these things. Dwell on these things. That's why it's, I, I'll go to the grave believing this. Take the extra 10 to 15 minutes every morning and read your Bible. Start your day with your Bible. 10 to 15 minutes? Real? Some of you spend longer than that over your Keurig, cursing it. Because there's no water in it. Or you, don't, you ran out of half and half cream. 
whatever it is, you're, now you got to go out of your way. You got to rush to get dressed. You got to go out of your way to go to your favorite coffee shop to get your stupid four-dollar coffee. But you didn't have time. You didn't have time to read your Bible in the morning, and then you wonder why you're a miserable person. Why you're miserable? That little four-dollar coffee does not satisfy your thirst for God. It never will. It never has. It's part of the scam. It's part of the deceitfulness of sin. It's part of the lies from the world that you've ingested. It's why you're miserable. You're not here. You're over here. That's the point. Get on the train. It's not a real train. Get on the train already. Stop buying the lies. I didn't say this. He said, think about these things. Dwell on these things. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Ah, thank you. Thank you. That should be our mindset each and every day. This was Paul's way of communicating what Jesus did, only with a different, within a different context. That... Abiding in the sphere of God implies good fruit, starting with peace. And I think I'll have to end here. We ended on Wednesday with a similar thought. That is that this is a package deal. This is a package deal up here on the board. We can never play the game of asking for peace, but rejecting the obedience of faith. We don't, we don't, what's the vehicle that takes us to peace? Faith. We, we don't get to reject obedience of faith. We can't reject getting on that train and expect to be led here. There's only one train. There's only one way. We can't reject that and expect all the bennies. We can never play the game of asking for peace but rejecting the obedience of faith we can't expect to experience love if we're cold to the truth, the very embodiment of it. So here's how I'll close. I just want to get practical for a moment. And I think this is the root cause, just, just food for thought. As you take these things away this morning, I think this is the root cause for the majority of pain in Christians and believers. They want all the blessings. I mean, who doesn't want what Paul just described? Dwell on these things. Whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is loving. Who doesn't want that? Peace. Who doesn't want fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Pe who doesn't want that? Everyone wants that. People want the blessings, but they want them on their own terms. They want to unbundle a package deal. They want bits and pieces of the truth, but not all of it. In other words, they want what's in the sphere of God, but they reject the idea of actually abiding there. They want what's in there, but they don't. They reject the idea of actually abiding there. And here's the analogy I'll close with. They want to live in their parents' house, 
reaping all the benefits of food, shelter, and creature comforts, but yet they refuse to obey the house rules. What the Bible teaches us is that peace is never found in that approach to life. In order to enjoy the benefits of family life, you have to commit to it. Does that make sense? In order to enjoy the benefits of family life, you have to commit to it. I'll close with this. Obedience of faith always leads to peace. You only have to think of one person for you to know that this is true. That's Jesus Christ. Obedience of faith always leads to peace. Jesus was perfectly obedient and had perfect peace. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful time of fellowship together. Thank you so much for giving us truth that sets us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things back to our homes and then out to a world that's just dying away, Father. We just ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.